Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the Eating Habits podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Lynch. On this week's episode, I'm joined with Julia Kane. She's our communications director and executive assistant for Fifth Street Group. We'll be looking back at our episodes up to this point and looking for some common threads amongst the industry, as well as taking some questions from some of our listeners and just kind of generally getting a state of affairs and the way things are going right now. So I hope you enjoy this little update. Enjoy the show. I'm Jamie Lynch, and you're listening to Eating Habits. <laughs> What's up, Julia? What's up, Chef? How are you? I'm good. Um, today is episode 35. I've got Julia Kane joining me today. She's going to help me work through some questions that we have gathered from some people that are interested in what's going on with the state of the industry. And I've got some notes on our past 35 episodes. We're going to talk about kind of what we learned, what's on people's minds, and, and kind of have a little recap. Yeah, I'm so. excited. I think it's going to be nice to take a step back and reflect on what we've been talking about since now February. Yeah. So what do you think? I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Because I have an idea too, but I want to hear what you think. Since you guys do a lot of the editing and listening to all the episodes, I mean, you guys hear probably more of these episodes than anybody else. I mean, you have to hear them over and over again. Do you see any reoccurring themes with the guests that we, we've had? Chefs? Restaurant owners, growers, farmers. We've had the whole game of fishermen, all kinds of people on, on the pod and sharing kind of their experiences. Have you noticed any underlying um, similarities from guest to guest to guest? Okay, might need a second to think about this. <laughs> well, um, I have an answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's been interesting to cover different aspects of the industry. So it's not like the same exact episode. It's not the a chef every single time talking about their struggles post COVID and leadership and everything. So it's been really interesting to see the perspective from, you know, a food critic, a food writer, PR agent, chefs, farmers, just everyone. But something that really has resonated with me is from one of the first episodes, Helen Schraub being Mm -hmm. the, an official food writer was her kind of perspective on influencers Mm -hmm. and that, her role as a food writer was people that grew to know her palate and understand the way that she felt about restaurants. They could relate with that. Whereas influencers now, it's just pictures. They're saying, ooh, yummy, this was great. It's pretty. Yes. And I think, (laughs) I think that like she, she highlighted some interesting things about we talked a lot about critique culture, I think is what I called it in yeah. that episode where it was like, let's talk about this critique culture. And it, and it kind of spoke to Yelp and Instagram and all these like, you know, social media sites that people can get on and share their views. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> she kind of had a bit of disdain for people that didn't know how to use their words. Exactly. To describe the experience they were having. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I kind of, I, I was like, I loved that episode. Um, I loved chatting with her. It was eye-opening for me, you know, being a chef and never have met her and having cooked for her and having my restaurants reviewed by her to finally sit down and get to hear her side of things. It was really interesting. 
It is interesting, too, when she is considered an expert in something, and then this wave of people come in and try and do the same thing, but with no real basis to it. Right. And I think that's the beauty of, of having a reoccurring critic or a reviewer of restaurants and whatever is that there's a standard, mm-hmm. right? Like she had a very specific standard that she would rate a restaurant or experience by. Mm-hmm. And a restaurant could be great anywhere within that realm, right? Like it didn't have to be a fine dining restaurant with um, X, Y, and Z on the menu and this and that to be excellent, right? Mm-hmm. It, could be, it could be a taco shop. Exactly. Um, but fall into the excellent category because of the price point, the cleanliness of the the building, and the um, and you know the experience get, getting your your food from the window or the whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And in having that standard, which we don't have in social media, right? It's like yeah. everybody's got their own opinion. Yeah, and it's all over the place. So also, you, whenever we talk to a chef in Charlotte, mm-hmm. they always mention. Oh, and when Helen Schwab wrote about us, the next day we were flooded. So yeah. Helen Schwab was a recurring theme. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she came up a lot. And um, actually, a, a bunch of chefs were surprised that she talked to me. They were like, wow, yeah. I'm surprised she, well, she's not doing it anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and it's so and, cool that was the first time you saw her face. Yeah. And, and, and I thought it was interesting that she asked to remain anonymous. She didn't want me to post any like pictures of us together or anything yeah. like that. Cause, um, I still haven't uh, seen her face. Oh, you don't know what she no. looks like still. The picture she was turned around. Okay, cool. I don't. I don't think she looked like what I thought she did really? in my head. Yeah, you know, because like, you know, having thought about her so much in the restaurant, like, and oh, you know, what's going to happen with the review and this and that, you build like stories in your head, right? Like you you create a story, and um, and I don't think she was at all the person that I expected. Yeah. Um, but she was awesome. What a great um, guest, and so had so many experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I look forward to having her back on actually. Yeah. Um, I think it's time to do a little round two with her. One of the things that I noticed come up a lot and this kind of speaks to the state of the industry is a lot of people touched on either uh, physical or mental wellness, you know, and I'm not sure if that is a result of being on the flip side of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. Like everybody was so focused on health and, you know, restrictions and all this kind of stuff for a while. Or if it's a shift in the industry as a whole, maybe the industry is looking for ways to become healthier, to become more sustainable, which I hope it is. Um, And obviously we're, we're pushing for, but you know, it wasn't just me beating the drum. You know, there was um, a lot of different chefs talking about sobriety, talking about different types of wellness rituals or things that they were doing and how important that is for them and their teams. Yeah. Um, I think as detrimental as COVID was, it also gave people an opportunity to step back after just years of go, 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 not reflecting and build those healthy habits that then once everything reopened, they could reinstate. Yeah. I think, I think it's also, I think it's the word I'm looking for. It is, I think a responsibility Mm -hmm. for restaurant owners and operators to consider that aspect of things. What can they do to help um, their teams balance better? What incentives can they give them? You know, whether it's health insurance or it's gym memberships or it's PTO, right? Pay time off or whatever it is. 
to help kind of infuse that idea of wellness and sustainability to their teams. I know we're certainly trying to do as much of that as possible. We, I've, I've heard a lot about different creative avenues that people are looking at mm -hmm. to do stuff like that. And I'd be interested in exploring some more of those ourselves. Is there anything that you could think of that we didn't mention that employees might be looking for as a wellness perk of the job? You know, I'm not sure how realistic this is, but I think <laughs> offering a talk therapist mm -hmm. to employees because therapy is extremely expensive. I'm, I'm actually super that, glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So um, this goes back to the episode with Juliet. Mm -hmm. She has uh, a bunch of uh, like counseling and therapy offices in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And she actually mentioned to me, and I'll reach out to her about this since you mentioned it, trying to get together some sort of corporate, some sort of corporate membership, right. For, for, for staff mm -hmm. and stuff where like we as a, as an employer could enlist their services and then, um, employees can get, you know, X amount of time or whatever. I, I don't know how it would work, but she definitely mentioned it. Like I think a program to offer some sort of program for, for therapy for restaurant people mm -hmm. that's, you know, hospitality specific, dealing with hospitality type yeah. problems, whether it's work-life balance, it's, you know, substance abuse, things like that. Um, it could be relationships, whatever. I think that's a really good idea. Actually, yeah. I think we should, we should pursue that and see what, what that looks like. And then what you had touched on in the episode with Brian Baxter too, is just encouraging your team to also prioritize their mental health because mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they have to want to help themselves yep. and just cut back on the partying and drinking. And, you know, they're still always going to have two days off a week, but it's what you're doing after your shift. Right. On your days off. Are you getting that rest that you need to mm -hmm. work the rest of the week? I think one of the totally one of the important takeaways from that was for me was kind of like personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Right. Like and I think this goes for anybody coming into the industry or is in the industry um, working in restaurants, wanting to move up in restaurants, wanting to excel. And I mean, I kind of, I think it can carry over into any industry, but, um, that personal responsibility for your own growth and taking ownership of your wellness, controlling yourself, balancing your life. And so that you're able to focus <laughs> on the job at hand. You know, I see a lot of distracted workers mm -hmm. coming through the restaurants and and you see it all over the place. I mean, I don't know why. I don't know if it's a generational thing. I don't know if it's, if it's a result of maybe some of the education that people are getting, if it's the places they've worked or whatever. But when I was a young cook coming up and the way that I learned, it was, you know, you had to earn your spot, right? It was mm -hmm. nothing was given to you, nothing, you weren't entitled to anything. And the only way you were going to get a shot, even an opportunity was if, you kind of had eye of the tiger, right? You were focused when you were there. You were doing whatever was needed to be done. Um, and then the people that did, you know, above and beyond were the people that got opportunities. Yeah. Opportunities to move up. And it's really difficult to balance all that if you're a fucking party animal and you're hungover all the time or you're late to work. You exactly. Know, those things kind of like counter. And also if you're someone that's really busting your ass all week, everyone's seeing the work you're putting in, but you're also complaining every day. I'm so tired. I'm yeah. exhausted. All of this. If people know that after your shift, you're going out and drinking all night, that mm -hmm. discredits you from 
being tired from working hard, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Everybody works hard. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So everybody's tired, you know, but if you can't do it, why can't you do it? it, One of my rules of thumb is don't complain about something if you're not going to do anything about it. I like that. I think that can also tie in with mental health too. Right. To a hundred percent. Yeah. What other, what other things were people talking about? I think, well, one thing that's interesting about the state of the industry kind of came through the conversation with Hannah Schneider and talking about, I think everybody's generally aware of this. We touched on it already is the influence and importance of social media in diners decisions on where to eat. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've known this for a long time. I mean, we fifth street group is very active in our with marketing, with marketing and, and social media. I mean, we've got, you know, there is a group of all of you behind the scenes that are, that are completely in that game. Um, and I think that just because we understand the importance of it, I think that a, people need to understand that um, restaurateurs and chefs need to know that, but you got to have the product to back it up. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, anybody can, you know, <laughs> one of my favorite things is like Pat always shows me, like talks about this. I don't know if it's a fucking ice cream shop or whatever the fuck it is, but they've got like the, the milkshakes with like, you know, oh yeah. The, the crazy Mason, and, I think it's yeah, called or whatever yeah. and bacon strips and shit hanging out of the, out of the glass. And it's just like on Instagram, it looks amazing, right? It's like a circus in a glass. Um, and that's great. That's but, a product that's made for social media. Right. For that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, my take on all that stuff is like, that's all fine and dandy. Like you can th- have your little, you know, kitschy pitches or whatever, but if, but if you don't have the quality product to back it up, you're probably not going to be successful. And that kind of touches on what Hannah Schneider was talking about. She doesn't want to open something trendy. Like those types of things are very trendy right, right now. Yeah. It's going to get you a lot of likes on Instagram and sure. views on TikTok, but it'll give you a lot of traffic for sustainable. It'll give you a lot of traffic for the short term. Exactly. Right? It's like 15 minutes of fame. Right. And then once you're, once you're on somebody's story, then they don't care about it anymore. Yeah. And how often realistically are you going to go and get a milkshake with 5,000 calories? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I might do it, <laughs> but, but only have like two bites. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. And then I think, it also, it also, I think, sets you up for failure because what you're doing, one, one thing that, that I kind of love and hate about the social media thing is that, you know, when I was cooking for people at the restaurants and they would like part of the excitement and satisfaction for me was that, that anticipation and surprise right? People, they've heard about the restaurant. They've heard about me. They've heard about the menu, whatever. And, and they show up and then, then it's that series of expectations being just blown out of the water, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's the, the writing on the ceiling and the decor of the restaurant, the, the soundtrack. Um, and then the food comes and they're like, holy shit, like, what is this? Like, this is so much better than, um, than I thought or whatever. That to me, like that experience is what is really special about restaurants. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid social media with, you know, the expectations are preset, right? You're showing people the menu. You're, you're giving them these expectations. And if you don't deliver, well, you've kind of, you've hurt yourself rather than helped yourself. Yeah. You might've gotten through the door, but they're not coming back. And even with reading reviews too, if someone's talking about how amazing the fried chicken is, but 
you don't like that spicy honey that goes on top and you just think because that person liked it, you're going to like it and you get it and you're like, this is terrible. Right. You can't assume that everyone writing reviews has the same palate as you. Right. They don't. I'm I'm sure that they don't. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that's that's an interesting state of the industry that I'd be interested to see where that ends up. Like how that evolves over the next couple of years. Like what, what is the new, I mean, TikTok is the new thing. It's not even new. How long has TikTok been around? A f- couple been, years, Yeah, right? it's been around for a few years. It got really famous like, in the pandemic. Yeah, so, no so like the past two years, it's yeah. kind of like blown up. And would you, would you say, because I don't know anything about it, so I have to ask you because you're the professional here. <laughs> um, is it, would, that, would you say that that is probably the most active used social media right now or... I would say so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the type of views that you see on there as opposed to Instagram or Twitter, mm-hmm. Facebook is, it's crazy to even believe there are that many people on the apps, let alone watching <laughs> this one particular video. Right. So I, I'm excited for the future of social yeah. media. I <laughs> you, think, you think it's going to get more real? I do think so. Good. I think with TikTok, that's helped to get there. Yeah. Help, <laughs> help to get there and help to. I just like, I like all the. The, the, the puppies like yeah <laughs> i watch all the puppy tiktoks that's what i'm about if you check out my uh my thing it's all the the talking dogs yeah it's more, <laughs> i think tiktok has more personality to it gotcha. it lets you show that more sustainability comes up a lot we and went through a whole farmer era yeah on the podcast yeah and and i think when i think of sustainability now i think about the mental health I think about the sustainability of our workforce, the sustainability of our business, the sustainability of our products. Like years ago when I, you know, when I was the executive chef, I was sustainability to me meant, you know, where's my product coming from and can I get the same product consistently um, at the same quality, right? And how can that product close the loop in my, in my culinary journey, right? So like, how can I give back to the community that I'm in, support them so that they can better support me with better products, mm-hmm. right? Like that's kind of how my, my version of sustainability was. And I think now, fast forward to, this is, I don't know, 10 years later, um, I've had an organic farm. I've worked on the farms. I've interviewed Sammy. Um, I've interviewed other chefs like William Disson who, you know, champion sustainability and stuff like that. Um, and now, and then all these conversations also about mental health and everything else, the workforce, livable wages. To me now, all these things feed into that. And I think it would be wise for restaurateurs, chefs to think about that. Think about the bigger picture a little bit. Spend a few minutes every day thinking about um, the sustainability of your workforce, not just if your shifts going to get covered today, you know, but is your, are your shifts going to be covered a year from now with quality employees? Will you be able to expand your business? Are you doing the kind of good work that's going to allow you to expand? A lot of people don't want to expand. A lot of, a lot of chefs are happy doing what they're doing with one store or tasting menu restaurants or all these things. And then there's other people that are out there trying to, you know, grow their footprint and, you know, have a bigger voice in the hospitality game. 
And I think I've also been on both sides of that. You know, like my dream was always to open my own restaurant. That was it. Close the book, you know? Um, but now, fast forward to here, um, that dream has been realized. But the importance of the bigger picture is what's important now, right? And all these things that we talk about on the podcast, that we hear about from our friends, um, chefs, owners, and everybody else, we can't realize all these things and these dreams if we don't continue to expand. Because that expansion is gonna give us the power to change things. Definitely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, as opposed to staying one, complacent. Yeah, staying complacent. Having, you know, having one restaurant that does you know, whatever, 200 covers a night, that's a great restaurant. You, could, you can pay yourself well and you can have a, a, a nice, happy little life. But can you change the collective consciousness of an industry with that? Probably not. Probably not. And I think that's what's become important to me. And I think some of these other um, activists, chef activists out there that really want to help to change the direction of the industry for the better, for the positive, to address a lot of the things that we've identified as being problematic, mental health, substance abuse and drug addiction, livable wages for, for staff, quality and sustainability, all these things, ecological health, you know, the ecological health of our, of our community is important for sustainability of our restaurants. Mm -hmm. If we can't get quality, healthy food locally, we're going to have to bring it in from somewhere else. Well, how does that help us yeah. in the sustainable, right? Um, anyways, so I think going back, I think the expansion, the growth of, you know, our vision and our business will help afford us the ability to affect change. And I think That's in our case too, with Tip the Kitchen, the more we expand and continue that program, uh -huh. the more jobs we're offering with a livable wage. Exactly. We'll invite more people into the industry and keep that flow, keep mm -hmm. that influx, and no one's going to be barred from working in the industry because of their financial circumstances. But if we have more stores, that's more people that we can help. Exactly. And I think also, 100%, you're 100% accurate on that. And I think you, we, I, I am surprised that less restaurants picked up on the tip the kitchen model and there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things and it's like once in a blue moon we hear oh this person's interested let's send them over the all the information about it right. i'm i'm surprised too yeah it's mind-boggling well and i think there's a lot to it so i think i think the biggest barrier to entry for tip the kitchen is that there's a commitment on the side of the ownership that you're going to spend more money. Yeah. Right. Um, we're ma there. The match is the thing I think that, that might deter some people from doing it because it's a substantial amount of money. Um, I think we are, we are over $2 million in, um, tips generated for our staff company wide. It's, it's over that it might be two and a quarter million, something like that. But last I checked like a couple weeks ago it was just, we just beat the $2 million mark. So if that's true and we match 50% up to a thing, we've spent almost a million dollars of our own income, restaurant income on this project, which I can see being tough for some 
owners. Yeah. Um, but then again, they also can scale that number based on the numbers that they're doing based sure. on the size of their business, yep. the amount of people working in the back of house. It, it could be a lot less than $500 a day. Sure. Totally. And, uh, still show the community that, Hey, we're doing this with you. Mm-hmm. We're putting this money into, we're in a partnership. Right. The important thing about it, I think, is that you're right, it is scalable. It's still going to be a percentage of your of your sales, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, I think we 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 kind of calculate that it's about 1% increase of our operating cost to do the program. If you balance that out with our lack of turnover, our lack of training costs, all these other costs that were have gone down as a result of us, you know, retaining staff, mm-hmm. we think it's about a 1% commitment on our part. Um, although monetarily it's more than that, but it offsets some other things. The Which import- I think is a pretty good percentage when you're investing in your people. And- right. And I think that's the important part, right? Is, is, is being okay with investing that money into your people rather than into your building or into your whatever, um, your pocket, I think is, is, <laughs> is part of the problem. Cause a lot of, I mean, it's a business, right? Restaurants are a business and owners need to make money. And that money's coming from the bottom line. It's not coming from, you know, at least in our model, it wasn't about raising prices. Um, I think a lot of people did that. Mm-hmm. Like straight away, they're like, let's raise, raise, raise prices, we'll pay people more. Yeah. It's like, okay, um, that works, but you end up cannibalizing your, your business by, you know, um, pricing people out. Yeah. Because, you know, becoming out of reach for right for the masses or, or whatever. And, and maybe for, for upscale fine dining restaurants, that's not a, that's not a big deal, right? Like the people that are, that are dining there are affluent. They don't care about a couple, you know, a couple dollars here or there. Um, it's not going to matter to them, but in a restaurant like ours, restaurants like ours that do volume, right? We need to, we need to be full. Mm-hmm. We need to do a lot of volume. So, Pricing people out of our restaurants wasn't an option. The key to all of this, and I think the most important thing that I want people to know is that this model works. Like it just, it works. Our staff is, they're, they're pleased, you know, with the income that they make and, and it's spreading out. We are starting, the word is out. People are starting to come to us. They've heard about Tip the Kitchen. They want to be a part of it. They want to work with our group because of it. Um, They want to feel that they are respected and taken care of and looked out for. Um, And so the important note about that is that Tip tip the Kitchen works for your people and that's going to work for your business. So people should give that a shot. Think about it at least, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So we have some questions here that some people put out that I think we should go through and answer. You want me to ask you them? Yeah, you okay. ask them. You, you, be the, you be the asker. Okay. I do all the asking. <laughs> you do some asking. All right. The first question came from William Underwood. Cool. And I thought this was a really great question. And this goes back to Tip the Kitchen. And he said, how did you come to the conclusion to address the back of house wage gap the way you did? That's a good question. So first, let me just say, what's up to William? I actually just bought, um, I bought a piece of his artwork yesterday. Um, It's a super cool piece. I'm going to post about it on Instagram and stuff and show people what it's about. But he's doing some really cool, um, creative artwork. Um, So I purchased that from him. And I'm a huge supporter of his his creativity. So, um, and that's a good question. I think 
I think, I think that it started from during the pandemic, the realization came to us and I think it started with Patrick, but the realization that, um, we had just put everybody out of work. We, we had to lay off our staff. So we were kind of going through the motions of that kind of trying to reconcile with that, trying to come to terms with like, what the fuck is going on and where are we going to go from here? And I think that that led to the idea of, you know, if we can get back to doing what we're doing, are people that work for us making enough money to survive? Right. I think it was, it was the bottom line and the realization that 12, $15 an hour, you know, $10 an hour, $13 an hour is not a livable wage in this country. <laughs> like it's just mm -hmm. not, not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It's not livable. Like you can't, you can't be a grown adult in this country with, you know, and have a vehicle and a house and insurance and daycare, you know, and a roof over your head mm -hmm. and meals on the table every night for $13 an hour. It's not possible. Like, I really don't believe it is. And, and I think, so I think that realization is what sparked the idea, right? Okay, well, okay, fine. So if we're part of the problem, right? We're paying all these people 10, 13, $14 an hour. We all agree it's not a livable wage. What are we going to do about it? How, like, we can't reopen our restaurants and then continue to damage the industry. Like, we've just been, the, the industry was annihilated during the pandemic. So the concept of like trying to heal the industry, if we're able, if we're able to reopen, we need to make sure that we are doing it responsibly and that we're going to be good stewards to the industry and try to affect change and not be a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's where it came from. And then, um, you know, Pat started talking to me and Alejandro about it, talking about different ideas that we might implement. Um, we looked at a lot of different policies um, that other people have tried, you know, no tips, pooled tips, whole house tips, like, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, maybe we do no tips and we just raise everybody's, you know, everybody's on a, on a salary, all these kinds of things. And, and Pat really orchestrated the tip the kitchen. You know, because there was a lot of elements to it to make it work. It's like every aspect of it is thought through. Yeah. Like nothing was missed. Nothing was missed. And, and we talked a lot about it. And, and, you know, I can't remember exact instances, but I do remember being out. Um, you know, we all moved into an apartment together or a house together on Isle of Palm during the pandemic and kind of like circled the wagons to figure out what we we're going to do. And I think we were sitting around kind of the kitchen table one day talking about tip the kitchen and the idea of it and kind of where Pat was at with it. And, um, and uh, you know, he would, he would use us as a sounding board to like, Hey, what if we do this? How does that work? What, you know, as an employee, what would this do this and that? And we just kind of were working through the problem like over and over again. Um, and we'd had, it was frustrating. Like he had to go back to the drawing board over and over again. It's like, Oh, well that won't work because you know, okay, fine. If we start tipping the kitchen and now the tips aren't going to the servers, now the servers are fucking pissed. Now we've got a, you know, we've got a civil war going on in our restaurant. That's not cool. So how do we address that? So then we go back to the drawing board and he worked out the stopgap, you know, appendix of this whole thing where, you know, we would, you know, balance that out and stuff. So there was a lot of back and forth. It was a long process, but the important thing was that 
we, we felt strongly that it had to be a partnership with our, with our guests, that it wasn't solely our responsibility to pay people more. It is, it was society's responsibility to say, these people deserve more, you know, and they're going to be a part of the solution. Um, and we'll share in that responsibility. And so that's really, I think how it started to take shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, just since you, we mentioned that we're a little bit surprised that Tip the Kitchen hasn't spread like wildfire. I yeah. wonder if Danny Meyer had the same thought about his no tipping policy. Because I, I haven't really seen that yeah, well, anywhere. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't think they're doing it anymore. Yeah, they, they yeah, are they, doing it. Yeah, after, they stopped doing it. After the pandemic, they yeah. stopped doing it. I think, I think a lot of that was because, I mean, I believe it's because front of the house staff wanted to get tipped. Mm-hmm. Like they make really good tips. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that, that I like about tipping is that it empowers the staff to take ownership of their income. Mm-hmm. It's at, not le- just at least a, a portion of it. Amount. Right. And, and we push that to the back of the house teams, you know, that they have some responsibility here to earn. Mm-hmm. Um, and by, focusing at work, coming to work healthy, ready to go, fired up, putting out great product, tasting everything, doing it quickly, um, they can influence their income. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's an empowering tool. And one more thing is um, it also empowers our team to self-regulate themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like a bunch of line cooks that are sharing a tip pool don't want some slouch that's sitting outside smoking cigarettes. I was just going to say that. Yeah, it, em- it empowers them to work more as a team. Right. And to regulate to each say, other. Hey, we, you got to yeah. step it up because how many breaks is that today? Yeah. Or are you going to work? You're going to clean the walk-in. What do you like, you know, you're out here lollygagging and we're in here trying to make, you know, trying to make tips the same way that the front of house tip pool system is too. Exactly. Exactly. So I Which think it's also really interesting too. When I first started, I started as a server at church and union because I've never seen house. that before. Yeah. Yeah. And I it always just, forget. It just, it's so interesting. That model too. I wonder like mm-hmm. if other stores would implement that because again, every aspect was thought through and it motivates you mm-hmm. to provide better service to guests so that you at the end of the day more, make more money. Right. But are also guaranteed a certain amount of money from the tip pool. Right. And I think I forget sometimes that that's not normal. <laughs> Like we've been doing that since we opened. And so, you know, for us, it is normal. Like we Mm. do a pooled house. You know, I think early on when we first, I think it was fairly new to at least the Southeast. What I will say is that the the pooled house is, it's designed to be best for everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. And even the top earning servers still earn more. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I believe it's up to, I think it's 15%. It's, of, yeah. So 15% of their tips goes into the, into the, the pool, pool and then anything above 15% you keep. So if they're, they're having a it, 30% tip percentage throughout the night, they're yeah. keeping 15%. Right. Yes. Yes. The additional 15%. The additional 15%. Right. Exactly. Comes to them. And by, then also it, that um, other 15% is then being re- re- redistributed out to them. Right. Based on how many hours you've worked. But. Correct. Exactly. And, and I think what that does is it helps, to, it, it helps to even out the highs and lows 
of, fr- of front of the house financing. And it right? also it's like just you don't have like one that teamwork. Like right. you're always lending a helping hand. If you're not doing something you're doing for your tables, you're doing it for someone right. else's tables. Exactly. Wherever I have worked in the past has just been so every man for himself. Mm-hmm. I've yes. never experienced a team like that before and, and being able to help someone else out. And then when I need to help, people are lining up. Yeah. And, that, and then that self-regulation is also an important part of that, right? Like the servers, I mean, they're the, the, the biggest band of pirates there is. Like they will toss somebody into the ocean, mm-hmm. right, if they're not pulling their weight. And, um, and I think that that's a really helpful tool th- as part of the, the pooled house is that they will keep an eye to make sure people are, A, giving good service, and if they're not pulling their weight, they'll, they'll let you know. And getting off the clock as soon as they can. <laughs> yep. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> this is helpful for any chef that is planning on expansion to hear a little bit of your wisdom on this. But how do you manage five different chef teams across three different states? Mm. Good question. <laughs> I don't know that I do half the time. <laughs> um, no, I think having an amazing team is the key. I mean, it's all about hiring the right people. Obviously, um, Chef Adam is you know, my crutch in this, he's my, my right hand man. So we're able to divide and conquer. Um, Adam's worked with me for a decade now. So he, um, and he's an amazing chef in his own right. Like he's, he's got his own talents and, and brilliance about him. But, um, but because we've worked together closely for so long, we're able to spread out and cover a lot more ground. So, um, for me, I would say it's the team. It's all about hiring the right people, training them well, supporting them when they need it is important. You know, make sure that you give, you know, a lot of the work that I try to do is for my team. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of it isn't about me or the guests so much anymore. It's more about how do I support them? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I get them what they need or want or, or whatever to help them do their jobs better? So that's, that's kind of how I do it. That's my approach. I think also having an open flow of communication constantly, like, yeah. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yes. <laughs> can help you mentally be there even if you physically aren't. Yep, totally. We have, we have a lot of systems too. I mean, um, systems help. Like having, um, you're saying flow of communication, like we have very specific um, threads to keep each other informed as to what's going on. So when somebody's off, for instance, if Adams you know, has a family day and is off, I can totally pick up the pieces exactly where we left off. Uh, because of that communication. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good tool. I think for that's sure. the most important part. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going back to Tip the Kitchen. I think this is interesting because we talk a lot a bit about what Tip the Kitchen is. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what benefits do you see from Tip the Kitchen firsthand? Well, turnover, obviously, is the, is the, the biggest game changer, right? Is the, the employees that we have that are reaping the benefits of Tip the Kitchen stick around. So we're not having to retrain um, people every six weeks, eight weeks, a month, or, or a year, whatever, right? People are sticking around for a long time and improving. And so that, that, that's probably the most noticeable thing. The quality of their work has improved. Um, I think part of having, having some ownership of your income that way through Tip the Kitchen has pushed people to want to do better while Mm -hmm. they're at work, wanting to work cleaner, harder, tastier food, that kind of thing. Uh, So that has definitely improved. And then just generally people showing up. 
we have less call outs and stuff than we used to because mm-hmm. people know like if I call out, I'm not, I'm not, not on my, I'm, am I, I'm not only missing out on my, you know, my hourly wage, but I'm missing out on a potential hundred dollar bonus mm-hmm. for just being there today. Um, and I, that, that, that means a lot to people. So it's, it's, th- those are the, the major things that I notice. Yeah. Cause yeah. every day for them is an opportunity to make even more money to than- earn. Yeah. yeah. The name but also, I mean, the, the staff morale is, is, is better too. Um, I think because of that self-regulation, we've weeded out some of the, the people that don't necessarily fit with our group. And as a result, the, the improved income, the ownership of that income, the self-regulation, all these things, um, the general morale of our team is positive. People mm-hmm. seem more inspired. They seem more pleasant to be around, happy to be at work. That's a huge improvement. Yeah. Um, what are three not so complex go-to meals that you make at home? Ooh. I mean, the, the, the meal that, <laughs> that we do most often is roasted chicken. Mm-hmm. And the, thing, the reason for that is that we can do one big prep day. And the big prep is basically seasoning a whole bird and roasting it. Right. It takes Mm -hmm. literally five minutes to put into the oven. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour to cook, depending on the size of your bird. But it takes five minutes to prep. And not only that, we throw in like roasted mushrooms and stuff into the the roasting pan at like the last 10 minutes. So there's one one dish to clean Mm -hmm. at the end. But the beauty about a whole chicken for two people is that it gives us three or four meals. Mm -hmm. Right. Because then the next day is chicken soup. Almost always, right? And there's a thousand variations you can do there. We could throw a little roux in there and thicken it and create more of like a chowder. We could add some dumplings to it and have chicken and dumplings. We could do, right? So there's all these variations on a soup that we can do with the, you know, the leftover meat and the bones from the bird. So that's it. Roasted chicken. Roasted chicken. Lately, I've been making a lot of pizza. Which drives Corey crazy. <laughs> like she'll come home and there's like a bomb went off. There's like flour everywhere and dough balls proofing on the counter and you know Maybe tomatoes. Maybe a little pizza window <laughs> yeah. here for your yeah. neighbors. I'm getting geared up for the, uh, for the Ophelia's mission. So there's a lot of pizza going on. I enjoy making pizza at home. Um, I'm actually getting good at it finally. So and the, <laughs> the deal with that is just like mastering the dough. Like if you can master the dough and how to work with the dough, then the rest of it's just fun. Mm-hmm. But like the first few times when, you know, the temperature of the dough is not right, it gets all stretchy and it rips and breaks and it's a pain in the ass and that's no fun. But once you master the dough, that's an easy one. So where do you get this chicken that you're roasting? Um, that's a good question. Um, often I buy the chicken from Whole Foods. Okay. That's Whole Foods is kind of our go-to for most of our meats, um, especially nowadays after like the supply chain is, is jacked up, mm-hmm. like getting, getting good quality meats, pork and poultry is, um, is hard to do in grocery stores these days. Um, so I will make the extra effort to get to Whole Foods. They have quality stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're sourced from, um, from good farms um, reputable places and I, and I trust their stuff and not only that you can see it I mean, you can see the quality of their product you pay a little bit more for it um, but you know that's yeah. where I go cool yeah all right what are some large misconceptions people have about the back of house stereotypes or oh that's a good question I don't know 
that we're all a bunch of crazy drug addicts, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. We're all sober now. I don't know what people are talking about. Um, let's see. I don't know. I think that the back of the house is like people think that we are mean or rough or assholes, I guess. And I think because like the mentality in the back of the house is like very direct, right? We don't have a whole lot of wasted communication, a whole lot of like, um, at least I don't like as a chef, I'm very direct with people. Um, even if it, you know, maybe rubs them the wrong way. It does. I don't really care about that. Right. Like I'm not out to hurt people's feelings or whatever, but at the same time, um, you know, I have a message to deliver and here's how we're going to do this, how we're going to do it. So I think people think that we're kind of, we can be assholes or whatever, but it's really that we're just a little more direct and, and efficient in our communication. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And going back to Brian Baxter's episode, he was talking about when you get all heated up in the kitchen, get pissed about something. Yeah. You talk or yell it out. And then five minutes later, that's fresh off your mind. You guys are back to business. Yeah. It's not personal. Yeah. Him and I are are a lot of like that way. I don't, I don't hold a grudge. You know, I'm always, I can be very difficult on my team at times because I have high expectations for them. Um, and our standards are super high. So if I get heated with, with the team during service, I'm always, you know, as soon as the tickets are off the board, I will let everybody know, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm you also don't have time to stay mad. Yeah. I don't have time to stay mad, but it's also not good for the team, you know? And I think, you know, one, one of the important lessons that I learned is, you know, as a chef is, is humility and suspending your ego and like owning your shit. You know, so like if, if I fuck up and, and rage at the team and whatever, um, you know, I'm, I'm always the first one to say, hey, like, that's on me. Like, sorry, guys, that's not you. Like, that's me not controlling my temper. That's me, you know, whatever, not communicating properly or whatever. And trying to own your own stuff as, a, as an example for your team of like, you know, it's okay not to be perfect, right? Like, it's okay to lose your shit or whatever, but like reel it in, correct it and move forward, mm-hmm. you know? Don't stay mad. It's not... There's not enough time in the day for that. <laughs> so this question kind of ties into the last one with mm-hmm. the perceived way the back of house is. Have mm-hmm. you watched The Bear? The uh, I watched, I think I watched two episodes. Okay. What do yeah. you think? I got a little like, like a little anxiety watching it. I, I saw, I think it was Bon Appetit put out an Instagram post about chefs yeah. saying they were really triggered. Yeah. I was super triggered. I was like, w- I don't know. I don't want to watch this. Like I live this shit, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I, so I honestly have, have kind of dropped off it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really interesting concept and I think I can understand why people love it. I think that they're doing a good job of telling a story that there are a lot of stories like that mm-hmm. um, out there. And, and so I think it's, I think it's a good glimpse into chef life a little bit but like for me i don't need to see that shit yeah. <laughs> like i fucking live that i'm good so you think they're doing a pretty good job portraying yes. that yeah for sure 100 percent. interesting yeah and what what's the dude's name who plays do you know who plays the bear what's his um he does a, f- a fucking awesome job yeah I've only seen a few episodes too. I've, I've kind of fall asleep during it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really good. I mean, if people, it, if it people, seems like it hit, it's if, really hitting close to home. Yeah. Like they really nailed it. Yes, totally. I think, I think if people want to, what's his name? Jeremy, was it? Jeremy white. Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. Jeremy, if you're listening. Yeah. Great <laughs> job, man. Holy shit. You freaked me out watching that. Thing. <laughs> but, um, but if people want, want to get a glimpse into the kitchen without having to go like in the kitchen, <laughs> That's a really good, it's a good story that, that will show yeah. you 
what it's kind of like. Cool. Yeah. I think I know the answer to this. Okay. Do you think that guests are more difficult or more understanding post COVID? <laughs> what do you think I would say? Um, I think more difficult. <laughs> yes, they're definitely more difficult. I, I, I mean, they just are. I think, and, but, and, and like, I believe that there is a collective trauma that happened um, and society's trying to figure out how to get back to normal because people, and this isn't everybody, like there are a lot of amazing um, guests that are coming out and supporting and being supportive and just wanting to enjoy, you know, the things that they missed. But there's a lot of entitled assholes that are coming out too. They want to share their fucking opinions and I don't fucking care. Like go eat somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to hear it. Nobody, neither does anybody else. You know what I mean? Like yeah. nobody cares what venom you're spewing all over your, your Yelp page. Nobody fucking cares. Like yeah. just, you know, enjoy the hospitality. We're there to help people. We're there to take care of them. And enjoy your company. Too. Yeah. You're, like, you're out to eat with someone that hopefully you enjoy. You would, or multiple people. You would hope. When you say that we're ruining your night yeah. for one mess up, yeah, what? it's kind of insulting to the rest of the it people is. that you're with. It's like, okay, well, I guess that camaraderie, like that company wasn't important to you. Yeah. It's, I think people are difficult, but I think, I think they'll get over it. I hope that chefs and owners and are, are going to stand up for themselves. You know, I think you know, we have been abused by the pandemic, too. Mm -hmm. right like we had to close all of our shit down and somehow survive and i think that that cut deeply into a lot of operators souls and i don't i think you're going to see a lot of people kind of sticking up for themselves mm -hmm. and and that whole customers always right shit isn't going to fly as well as it did before yeah you know um, i know that we you know we have you know we have a code of conduct that we expect our guests to, you know, abide by when they come to our restaurants, Yeah, you know? So, um, you know, be, be gracious, you know, enjoy yourselves. That's, that's what you're here yeah. for. I think you that kind of spans across all industries too, because I remember when stores like shot, like, um, clothes stores, retail opened up, my mom went and she was so excited. She was like, Oh my God, it's going to be amazing. And she was like, Oh my God, everyone was an asshole. She was yeah. like, I thought that when the doors to everything reopened, everyone was going to be so grateful and yeah except anything just because that was stripped away from them for so long. And she was like, everyone was horrible. And it was just like eye opening to be like, this is this how the rest of the world is going to go yeah. after this? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that it will return to normal. I think that I, you see it. It was definitely, it was definitely worse. Um, you know, right when we reopened and there were still a lot of restrictions and people were very wary about what was going on and just, you know, you could sense some uneasiness in the air. Um, I definitely feel like as time's going on, people are loosening up and it's, it's becoming better. Um, and I think that there will always be assholes out there, but I think it's getting better for sure. People are starting to become more appreciative and, and, and understanding that um, time is limited and you have to enjoy it. So mm -hmm. don't, don't be a jerk. Heard that. <laughs> How would you get young people interested in the industry? Mm. I think young people should start learning how to cook earlier. You know, I, I never knew how to cook. And, you know, honestly, my folks are not very good cooks either. 
And I think had I had my hands in food earlier, younger, and had more of an understanding of like where food comes from and how to make things happen and um, just really basic, simple stuff, um, you know, how to, how to, you know, how to hard boil an egg. How do you, how do you cook pasta? How do you, you know, boil um, a pot of pasta? Things like that. I think if you start teaching young people that process, they will become a lot more interested in food and cooking. Um, and then by way of that, the industry, mm-hmm. that would be, that's how I would do it. Yeah. That's a good answer. Maybe writing a kid's cookbook. Would be the, <laughs> oh my God. That would be fun, right? That's a good idea. <laughs> Write that down. Yeah. Kid's cookbook. There you go. Hey, play with pretty, your food. That's pretty solid. We'll call it play with your food. Play. All right. Play with your food. We just came up with something. There we go. <laughs> cool. All right. And I'm going to take one more. We're going to do one more and then, then we get it. Okay. Go. And this is my favorite. Okay, cool. And I'm really interested to hear the answer. So it's what is your creative process for creating a new menu item Ooh, good one that changes from time to time so a lot of my inspiration comes in one of two ways or it could be both ways one comes from different cultures i get like i go i get interested in cultural things whether i see stuff or traveling and and it kind of sparks an interest and then i will explore that culture through its food types of ingredients, style of cooking, whatever. And I'll start playing with those techniques and ingredients and kind of rolling them into my repertoire. And then I'll start creating dishes based on those things. Um, so that's one way. The other way um, I start the creative process is with an ingredient. So it could be, you know, it's the fall now. We're getting into like winter squash season, things like that. I might start with a kabocha squash right? A really cool Japanese kind of winter squash. And then I'll say, all right, I want to do a dish with this. And then I'll start exploring. And then I'll start thinking about the ingredient. What is special about the ingredient? Well, it's got a cool color. You know, it's got like this really kind of mustardy orange color to it. All right. That's kind of cool. It has an earthy kind of warm wintry flavor to it. It's not really sweet like a butternut squash or something like that is more on the savory side of things. Cool. So I'll start there and I'll start exploring that and say, how do I want to, how do I want to showcase this ingredient? Right. And I'll just build from there. And it's, for me, it's a very cerebral process. It's like, I think through it, right. I'll just say, Oh, I want to do this cool dish where oh, I've got a, like a roasted chicken. And then like, I'll put this garnish on it. It's more like, okay, what story do I want to tell of the squash in this dish? Do I want to play off its texture or do I want to completely hide its texture? Mm-hmm. Right. And then that'll start to dictate how I'll manipulate the product and what the dish will eventually morph into. Rarely do I look at um, an ingredient and say, okay, here's the dish. Boom. <laughs> it's kind of like a domino effect. Yeah. It's like, it starts as an exploration and kind of like a, tug and pull and play to figure out where it's going to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I usually start off with an ingredient or, or some sort of cultural thing that'll kind of start the process. Mm-hmm. And then I'll start systematically kind of asking questions about where I want the dish to go. To Are myself. you a cookbook person yourself? Do you read cookbooks? Yes. I look at pictures. Okay. I don't read cookbooks. I look at pictures. 
All right, cool. So <laughs> um, that is really interesting. <laughs> I think that also goes off a little bit of what um, Chef Mike Noel was talking about, about mm-hmm. letting the ingredients tell the story of the dish, which yep. is something that me, who's not a cook, yeah. thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would think that the dish, it started with the dish and then the ingredients. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes it does. Like, I think sometimes like some chefs operate that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you, you kind of work backwards. But for me, the process is always starting, starting from nowhere and trying to like tell a story. Like, and mm-hmm. I'm tr- always trying to figure out how to communicate something to the eater about the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they don't, you know, when they get it and they really enjoy it, that to me is a win. Right. That's a super win. Even if they don't get it, which happens more, like more often, people don't really get what I'm doing, but they still enjoy it. That's also a win. Right. Mm -hmm. Like as long as people are having a good time enjoying it, I'm happy. But when people really get what I'm trying to do, I I feel like I've accomplished something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Awesome. So that's it. That's all we got for today. Join us next time for fucking eating habits, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cool.